That's good. I see that uh, I see that our staff's new way of asking is asking for forgiveness rather than permission. <laughs> I'm in the back. I hear all these kids, and they're like, "Just don't worry. It's a surprise to me." So, all right. Um, if you were uncomfortable with that, so was I. So that's okay. But that's good. You know, it's good. It's real good. Um, good morning. My name is Josh. Um, I am the lead pastor here, which is still weird to say, but it feels uh, kind of fun at the same time. So welcome to Northwest Hills. We doing okay? Yeah. Um, yeah. So just, just to kind of a, a heads up, it's, it's, it's weird because today we were praying with our, our whole team kind of beforehand, and we're talking about today is, is a little bit more of a somber day, confession, repentance, and then that happens. So I'm going to slowly transition us to that, I guess. Um, we will be in Nehemiah 9. Um, I promise you we'll be there. And, and also just an update. Last week I said that we're getting Bibles. Um, the Bibles have been ordered. Apparently that's a lot more work than you'd think because there are about 18 million different types of Bibles that you can get and bringing them in here with the right lighting and all kinds of age groups of eyes, looking at them, making sure it's the right one. So we got an excellent Bible. So next week in your seats, there will be Bibles, which is great. I love it. Yes. Can we? Yes, I know. Um, so we'll be in Nehemiah at nine, but I wanted to share just a quick story. So I've got this bag here. Um, a couple of weeks ago on a Wednesday, I went into my office and on my office desk was this bag. And uh, it's, it's a nice bag. It was filled with some uh, watermelon-flavored water bubbly and some uh, let's, little cupcakes, a little card in it from one of the pastors in town. He said, let's celebrate. Uh, so excited that you're the pastor. We got this little gift for you, which, which was great. It's a very, very kind gift. And this bag kind of just sat on my desk for a couple days after the food was eaten. And every time I look at this bag, um, I really just kind of had a nervous chuckle in a nervous laugh, so I took it away, and I brought it home, and it was on my workbench for a few days, and every time I went out in the garage and I'm working out, I, I see this bag, and, and I still kind of just shake my head a little bit and, and laugh a little bit, and, and here's why. It's not because this is a bad bag. Like, I'm not against reusable bags. I'm all for that. Like, maybe you could make the case that, um, I don't know, this bag is not going to decompose for 10,000 years or something, but that's really not why uh, I am nervous when I read this bag. Um, if you look carefully, it's got words all over it. Can you guys see that in the back, some of you? Yeah. Um, and here, I'm just going to read uh, what this bag says. It's a shopping bag, and I'm just going to read it um, because, again, it, it has so much to do with where we are in Nehemiah. So this is a bag. Uh, it is, I'll just, I'll just read it. It says, push your limits, push your luck, push it real good, get a leg up, give a leg up, get a leg over, Say I do, say I don't, be buff, be buffy, stake a claim, eat a steak, raise the stakes, be comfortable in your own skin, be comfortable with everyone's skin, make your own bed, lie in, lie in it with whomever you please, speak your mind, mind the gap, take the pill, take your chances, be miss, misses, misunderstood. Suit up, suit yourself, take the shot, call the shots, eat, pray, eat your prey, Take the wheel, take the credit, take your sweet time, bear arms, grin, but not bear it, make it, break it, fake it, burn rubber, burn bridges, show up, show off, show them, be master of all you survey, master of your domain, master of none. Believe in God, believe in the Easter bunny, 
believe in yourself. Put your left foot in, put your left foot out, shake it all about. Hokey, hokey, hokey. Uh, Toe the line, walk the line, draw the line, cut the line, meditate, lactate, hesitate, generate, cast off, cast a ballot, be able, be other, be motherly, be otherly, be an athlete, be a mathlete, break the rules, make the rules, totally rule. Um, on the side, it says Title IX, uh, which I found out this week is a clothing brand. Uh, which I, I love women's athletic clothing. I've got three daughters, a wife who would probably love all their clothes. Uh, and Title IX is also uh, the federal civil rights law from 1972, as most of you know, uh, trying to bring equality to publicly funded education when it comes to opportunity for men and women. Um, but what I read in that bag, um, if I counted correctly, were 70 different truth claims um, from, from the top to the bottom that says, do this, believe this, be this. And the reality is like, I can read through that. And most of them I look at and go like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's like a really good thing for culture. That's, that's a healthy thing that helps people thrive. Um, but some of those things I read, and obviously some of you did too, and you go, huh? <laughs> like, is this, is this really the best thing for our culture? Um, some things again, yes, you, you read and and you believe in, and, and you're all for, and, and some things you read, and, and you just kind of have questions about, like, ah, oh, man, I, I, I completely disagree with some of the things that are said. So that puts you in this awkward spot. What do you do when you have competing truths with one another? When you believe something that you believe that this leads towards human flourishing, and someone else has a completely different view that leads to something else? And when you're trying to build a culture, you're trying to build a community, what do you do when the foundations of what you believe are not the same thing, right? And then how do you treat someone who thinks differently than you? Now, this is an interesting question. It's one that you can go for a long way and really chase your tail in a lot of ways. If you think uh, something differently, fundamentally to be true than someone else, how do you treat that person? Right? Generally speaking, the average person might say, well, you treat them with dignity and respect even if you disagree with them, right? Like that's, that's a pretty common thing. I remember growing up, my parents used to say, we can agreeably disagree, right? But what happens if what the other person's doing is harmful, right? Then what do you do with them? Let's suppose that you have the means, you, you try to stop someone who's doing something that's harmful, right? Um, well, how do you define what's harmful, like that gets really tricky, right? It, you know, physically we say, well, if you're harming someone physically, you stop them, right? That's what police are for. Uh, we enforce laws that stop people who are harming someone physically. But what happens if you're harming someone mentally or emotionally? How do you stop someone? Should you stop someone? Well, who gets to decide what it means to hurt someone emotionally? You see where this trail goes? All of a sudden, you get into the realm of something like hate speech. And some people will say, well, that's really harmful and we should stop that. Well, who gets to decide what that is? See, truth is something that is not trivial. It's really important. But it's something that we trivialize and we put on shopping bags. And it's something that while we put it on a shopping bag and it seems like, well, this is not a big deal, the truth is what we're trying to say is, no, this is really a big deal and you should believe the things that I'm saying you should believe in. See, all over, our, all over this world, all over our culture, all over the day, we are promulgating truths that we're wanting other people to believe in. 
We see it all over the place. Um, right now, we're gathering. I'm going to speak for 30, 35 minutes, 20 minutes. Um, hopefully proclaiming what it is that we believe to be true. But then you leave here and you're also getting messages all the time forever about other people's ideas about what is true. You get this in education. You get this in shopping bags. You get this when you watch movies. I went to, um, to Toy Story 4. First time I've gone to a movie in literally years. I took my two oldest kids last week. And we're sitting through this movie, and i got a five-year-old and a seven-year-old in here, and literally like three or four times through this movie, I kind of get the same nervous chuckle laugh as when I'm reading this going like, really? Like, I, I can so blatantly read what you're selling through this movie, and my five-year-old and seven-year-old, they have no clue. They're just inoculated with, oh, this is so fun, Buzz Lightyear. I'm just going like, you're, you're making some strong claims here. If you're wondering, just go watch the movie. There's a lot of them. If you're 35, you can pick up on some of that stuff. If you're seven, not so much. My point is, truth really matters. It's important. And everyone has some sort of truth that we believe in. And the reality is we're trying to get other people to believe the things that we believe in. Everyone does that, whether you're religious, whether you're irreligious, everyone has fundamental things that they believe are true about life and the universe and the reality that we live in. And where do you stand on when it comes to the things that you believe in? Where do you get your truth from? It's so important. As we, as we kind of open up this book of Nehemiah, as we're in this study called Rebuild, we looked at the fact that the very first thing that they did to rebuild a culture was to start with what is true. To start with a foundation of the word of God. See, the, the, the reality is, if you don't have a foundation, storms in life will come. They will come. That's a promise. And if you don't have a foundation, if you don't have something firm to stand on, you will fall. It will hurt. It will be painful. But life is looking for foundations. People are looking for truth. And my, my really hope I'm casting out there and what we saw in Nehemiah and we're going to get into today is that we put our faith, we put our hope in truth that has lasted for thousands and thousands and thousands of years that has spanned across generations and that will hold true no matter what time, no matter what place. And that is found in the word of God. And I promise you, it is the only place to start. You got to start there. You got to start with the word of God. And so um, for us young people, for you who are really young, you, you're getting told messages all the time. And I would just challenge you, where, where is the truth in those messages? Where are they coming from? Start with the Bible. Open it up on the daily. See what God's word has to say about what is true. That's where Nehemiah starts when he's rebuilding a culture. And that's kind of where we're picking up today in Nehemiah at the end of chapter 8. So we've been in this series called Rebuild. Um, I'm just going to super briefly recap where we are in this study of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah um, is, is the very end of the Old Testament, this story where God creates uh, a nation and a people group with one man, Abraham, growing to a few million people over 1,500 or so years. And, and we're going to see it today. We see it throughout the entire Old Testament, this ebb and flow of these people following God and rejecting God, but God being merciful. God continuously saying, um, I forgive you, I love you, let's restart, let's try something again. And so this, this ebb and flow happens for 1,500 years. Um, so long that eventually God says, okay, enough's enough. You've got your people, you've got your city, you've got your language, you've got your culture, but I'm going to restart, refresh everything. 
And they're destroyed, they're captured, they're conquered, they're, they're brought into exile, they're moved out 900 miles away, and for 50 years this whole nation that God was working through um, were outcasts, they were exiles, they were foreigners uh, in a land that wasn't theirs. After about 50 years, though, um, another country comes in, Persia comes in, and, and they let them go back to Jerusalem. So this whole story is, is this rebuilding of a culture, rebuilding of a nation, this nation that God has promised from the beginning that he will build and bring through them a Messiah who will bring ultimate truth and healing uh, to our entire world. Um, we saw last week, again, the, the beginning of what they did after they built this wall. Um, the wall was to bring protection. The wall was to, to protect what was um, who they were fundamentally as a people group. And where they started with that was understanding uh, who God is. And so they opened up the Bible. And we have this scene of 50,000 people gathering. And they opened the Bible for the first time in a long time. And someone read it. And as they were reading it, everyone begins to weep and cry and mourn because they know, man, what I'm reading in the Bible is not consistent with what I'm seeing right now. It's not consistent with how I'm living. It's not consistent with how our forefathers have lived. And so it totally breaks them. But then uh, Nehemiah says, it's, it's okay. God is merciful. He's gracious. We need to celebrate because God is good. And, and so they have this big party. And we talked about a time to party last time. Um, but then what we see this week is a time that's much different than a time to party. Um, we see that it's a time to confess and repent. And so we're going to pick it up right after. So, so this gathering of 50,000, they open up the word. They're weeping, they're crying. Nehemiah says, it's okay, let's party. So they party for a day, and then they come back the next day, and we read this in chapter 8. So if you would, would you stand with me? We're going to read from Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 13. This is the day after uh, the big party. This is starting in verse 13 of chapter 8. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in, uh, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. Far from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law. They kept the fast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may take a seat. So we, we get in this picture... Um, again, this huge gathering. They're coming back. Uh, Nehemiah reads the word of God again. And the word of God says, um, in the month of July, every single year, what I want you to do as a people group is I want you to go out. I want you to cut down a bunch of wood and I want you to make a tent. 
And in this tent, uh, I want you to dwell in it. I want you to fast. I want you to put the tent on your roof, put it out in the courtyard, put it in the temple courts, put it all over. And for seven days, you're going to live in this tent. And really for one purpose and one purpose only. And that is to remember a time and a season when you had nothing but God was faithful. See, in the very beginning, when God calls Abraham, he tells Abraham, he says, I'm going to make you this great nation. And through you, eventually Jesus is going to come. And so there's this huge promise. There's this huge anticipation. Well, after Abraham comes his son Isaac, and then comes Jacob, and then comes Joseph. And then after them, you get 400 years of slavery in Egypt. So think about this. There's people who, there's this great promise. You're, you're going to do great things. You're going to build this nation. Uh, but then 400 years, they're in slavery. Well, where is God in that? Think about if you had this promise given to you that, that this great nation is going to be built and then for 400 years you're in slavery. So then they come out of slavery and God's in, through Moses and God says to them, every single year in the month of July for a week, I want you to remember what life was like when you had nothing. And here's why. Uh, these are words from Moses. I, I think they're insanely powerful. I think they're beautiful. And honestly, I think they have a lot to say to you and I here today. Um, we read this in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. This is from God to the people, reminding them what happened as they were coming out of slavery. He says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full, and have built good homes and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. You forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end. Beware, this is such a strong warning, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God, and you go after other gods, and you serve them, and you worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So you think about this group who's come back. You've got this 50,000. The big remnant is still back in Babylon. They're rebuilding. They're starting to feel good about themselves. Okay, we're, we're reestablishing something. It would be very, very easy for them to say, okay, we're, we're starting to look okay here. We, we've got a little money in the bank. My, my house is being built. My 401k is looking all right. My kids are doing good. The sun's out. I've got vacation coming up. Life's doing pretty good. Look at what my hands have done. Does this sound familiar? I think it's fascinating. Um, you look in Scripture, and whenever Scripture talks about money, 
most of the time, it's usually in the context of a warning saying, be very careful. Be very careful because it's so easy when you have everything to say, look at what my hands have done. And when your hands say, look at what what I've done, your heart says, God, I don't need you. You don't exist. You haven't done anything for me. And God tells the people um, through Nehemiah, he says, you need to physically do something to remind you of the time when you had nothing. You ever do that? See, I I think in the West, like we, we like to think that all of learning happens through the intellect. It's just, okay, if I can just learn it up here, that it will happen down here. But God says, no, you need to do something physically to remind yourself once a year that you came from nothing. Um, Every week uh, on Tuesday for the last year or so, my family, um, we eat nothing but rice on Tuesday night for dinner. It's kind of a fun practice. My kids hate it. Um, But all we eat is, is rice, and here's why. We do it as a physical reminder. It's, it's not a budget thing. Like, we, we can eat. We're fine. We're happy. It's a reminder that everything we have is from the Lord and that there are tons of people on the planet who only get this or less. Um, see, the bigger lie would be, the bigger lie would be to tell my kids, we can eat whatever we want whenever we want. That's, that's the bigger lie. And that's the lie that most of us live. That's the easy lie. The easy lie is, if you want food, go to the refrigerator. It's there whenever you want it. Why is that a bigger lie? Because everything comes from the Lord. But the wealthier you get, the wealthier we get, the easier it is to forget that our hands are an act of mercy from a God who made them. In this time where this nation's being rebuilt, it says that this hadn't happened since Joshua. This has been 800 years since this nation built the little tents, hung out outside, and reminded themselves, God, there was a time when we were in slavery for 400 years and had nothing. We had nothing. Yet, God, you are faithful, and you have brought us from slavery to rebuild a nation. So as we're rebuilding, we keep talking about this whole idea of rebuilding. Are there areas in your life that you need to rebuild practices just to remind you? Just to remind you that you know what? Like... Everything I have isn't because I worked hard. There are parts of that that are true. But if you were born in 1800 in Russia, like you would be working just as hard and have nothing. And I think we need physical reminders sometimes to say that, Lord, my hands are an act of mercy from you. My mind is an act of mercy from you. My, my cognitive abilities are an act of mercy from you. The fact that I can go to bed, lock my door, turn off lights, and sleep soundly is an act of mercy from you. See, the, the thing is, um, it doesn't take much for lives to get completely changed and turned upside down. Right? We see that. We've seen this just recently. Here, here let me say, this is the really, really sad, kind of terrifying reality of our world. As I was preparing through this, I was thinking, okay, w- what are some things that I could say that, that would remind us of how quickly life can change? And kind of the first thing I thought of was, oh, I can share um, just about a, a terrifying moment at a garlic festival in Gilroy. Right? Um, and I've been to that festival. But we've had two more heinous tragedies since then. And that's, that is, that within the last 24 hours, we've had, I think, two mass shootings. Just how quickly everything changes in life. How quickly, if you were there, if that happened, how quickly everything changes. And so we need reminders that everything that we have is a gift from God. And Nehemiah does that with his people. He reminds them, stay out in a tent for a week and remember that everything that you have is from him. 
In Nehemiah chapter 9, the story continues. Um, I am not going to read the whole thing. It's a beautiful prayer. Um, Nehemiah chapter 9, if you ever want to know what the Old Testament is all about, uh, and you don't want to read the whole thing in one sitting, because that would take you a very long time, the longest summary of the entire Old Testament is found in Nehemiah 9. And it's found in the form of a prayer. Um, so they're gathering. This is after this feast. So they, or, sorry, it's after, um, after they are not feasting, but after they are fasting. Uh, in these booths, they gather for the very purpose of confession and repentance. So this, this congregation gathers again. You got 50,000 people. They're in sackcloth. They're in ashes. They're gathering. And Nehemiah leads them through this prayer. And in this prayer, we see kind of six movements And in each of these movements, it's a declaration of God, you have provided. And it it talks about God's provision. And then immediately following God's provision, it's, and we've completely blown it. And then after completely blowing it, it's God, but you're merciful. And then in your mercy, they rebuild. And God, you provide again. And then we reject you again. And then you're merciful again. And you see this movement six different times. And the whole thing is a prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. I'm going to read pieces of it because we got to kind of see what was going on in Nehemiah 9. So they're gathering, and they're gathering to remember who God is, remember what he's done, and they're gathering for the sole purpose of repenting and confessing. I'm going to pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. It says, You are the Lord, you alone. You've made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heavens worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and who brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Pezite, the Jebusite, and the Girishite, and you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Text goes on to talk about all the things that God has done to be faithful to his call. And then hear this. This is the story of you and I. It's the story for thousands of years of humanity. Here's what we read in verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously, and they stiffed their neck, and they did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffed their necks and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. So we see this pattern. We see it in the Old Testament perpetually. I I believe we see it today. I believe that this is a pattern that just regularly repeats as you've got one generation who really proclaims and loves the Lord, followed by a generation who just assumes their parents' faith, followed by the next generation who rejects their parents' assumption of their parents' faith, followed by the next generation who has nothing and rebuilds once again because the promise that their generation before them gave them did not fulfill itself. If that was incredibly confusing, I'm saying you've got grandparents who love the Lord. Oftentimes you've got their kids who are like, yeah, we'll go to church occasionally. And then you've got their kids who are like, yeah, not for me. But then eventually when the not for me leads to destruction, you've got the following generation that says, I need something better than what was promised me. And so just through thousands of years of history, we see this ebb and flow of following the Lord, rejecting him, God being merciful, people repenting. Really, it's interesting. If you look at the the nation of Israel, 
um, the word Israel itself. If you know the Hebrew meaning of the word, it means to struggle with God. So it's interesting. You, you've got God building this whole nation of Israel, and the very meaning of the word is to struggle with God. You go to uh, Genesis 32, in the roots of this word. Uh, in Genesis 32, when Jacob is wrestling all night uh, with an angel of the Lord, and at the very end, um, he says, I will not stop wrestling until you bless me. And God blesses him. And he says, I'm going to change your name from Jacob to Israel. And that's where this name Israel comes from. And it's this whole idea of wrestling with God. And that sounds very familiar to many of us, a life where we find ourselves wrestling a lot with the Lord. God, you seem so good. And God, I have doubt. And God, you're so good, but I have doubt. So in Nehemiah, they're in this need to rebuild once again. And what we see here uh, at the very end is, is they're actually in a really sad place. You know, the wall's built. The temple's built. The houses are still in ruin. People are kind of scattered all over the place. And through Nehemiah 9, through this retelling of the history of God's people, at the end we see where their true hearts were, and they were really in a sad, dark place. We read this at the end of Nehemiah 9 in verse 32. It says this, says, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and that awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, upon our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. You have been righteous in all that have come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that, have gave, that you gave them, even in their own kingdom. And amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves to this day. Listen to this tone. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies. They rule over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. See, this, this people who are able to go back to Jerusalem, they're not free yet. They're still under Persian rule. Persia at any moment could say, nope, that's our city. At any moment they can say, nope, give us half of everything. At any moment, they can come in and completely wipe them out because they have all the military might. And God's people are saying, God, we are slaves. We once were free, but we are slaves. And here's the covenant that they make. They begin, and I'm not going to get into it. John Reese is going to be preaching next week through this covenant. But we read this at the very end. It says, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So they make this promise. They go before the Lord and they say, hey, here's the deal. We have not been following you and we are slaves right now. Jesus, we are, we're going to renew the vows that we made. We're going to renew the promise that we would follow you. And they build out this whole covenant. And here's the thing. It had been a thousand years um, for this people group um, since they have gotten this, this law, it had been a thousand years since all things were kind of at the height of where they were and a thousand years of watching back, of 
following God, disobeying him, God punishing. And they're, they're at the end of that cycle. And they're like, okay, we're going to try again. Maybe this time. Maybe this time after a thousand years. This may be the time that we can keep our promise. And maybe some of us feel this way. Right? Maybe some of us feel this way of, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rebuild again. Right? Maybe if you're young and you're not quite there yet, you're like, maybe your faith is kind of new and you're trying it for the first time. Maybe you're a bit older and you're going like, I have tried and I keep failing. I keep failing. Well, that's, that's kind of the story of the whole Bible, right? We're going to keep trying, but God is faithful. God is good. As they confess they repent, they come before the Lord and they say, you know what, God, we, we keep abandoning you. We keep forgetting the things that we promised that we would do. But God, would you come through? And here's the interesting thing. And I said this the very first week that I started preaching. Um, we're at the very end of the story here. This is literally the last thing that happens in the whole Old Testament before Jesus comes. And then you get 400 years of kind of silence in between. And you get this like anticipation that, okay, you're going to do something. We're going to make this promise. It's going to work out. But it doesn't. It doesn't work out until finally Jesus comes and he says, you know what? Like he, the point was never that you would be able to keep your promise. The point, the point has always been that I'm going to be good enough. That I'm going to give my life for you and that that's going to be enough. Because you and your sacrifices and your goats and your sheep and your doves, that's never going to do it. You trying harder, you coming to church on Sunday and saying, okay, this week is the week that I'm going to conquer sin. This week I'm going to start being a better wife, being a better husband. This week I'm going to be a better student of your word. Man, just trying hard will never get you there. Yeah, we're supposed to try hard. We're going to talk about what covenant looks like next week. But man, the grace of God says, even in your trying, you're going to fail. But it's the cross that gives you hope. So as we rebuild, I want to just ask three brief finishing questions. Does your foundation for truth need rebuilding? Right? I open it up with kind of this silly thing with a bag, but it's not silly. It's so important because what is true is what drives everything about you. And everyone has some sort of truth. And where does it come from? It's got to come from the Word of God if it's going to last. It has to come from there. So I would implore you, start with studying the Word of God. The next question I would say is, do you need reminding that you're not king of your own universe? See, again, I think it's so easy, so easy in the States right now, where everything is so good, everything is great, vacation. Like, you go right now, in like three hours, you drive to I-5, and you will be backed up from Seattle, from people coming back from fun and glamour and glitz. And it's all great. Life's so good. And in those moments, it's so easy to say, look what I've done with my hands. And forget that we serve a God who nothing happens without his provision. Lastly, does your commitment and your faith need rebuilding? Is this a, is this a day where you say, you know what, like the people, I'm going to come and I actually am going to confess. I am going to repent. There are things in my life that, that, I, that I actually need to confess before the Lord. See, even as a New Testament believer, we're called to confess. We're called to repent. We're called to make a new covenant again and again saying, God, I'm going to come back to the things that I know are necessary for my soul to be in line with you. And this is why we have a physical reminder of this as well regularly. So we're going to go to a time right now of communion. And I love communion because here's what's going to happen. We're going to have people coming up during this next song. They're going to pass bread. They're going to pass a cup. And this thing is that physical reminder. It's like that week out in the, in the tent 
where you've got something physically and you say, okay, Lord, this is your body. This is your blood. This is a gift that you gave your life for me. I need something physical to remember. Jesus, without you, I have nothing. And maybe this is a time where in the next three songs, I think we're doing a three song set where you say, God, what in my life needs confessing? What needs repenting? For the people of Israel, it was confessing the things that their forefathers did, but it was also confessing the state that they were in, the state that says, I need you, I'm a slave, I've got nothing, I need renewal. And maybe as you need rebuilding right now in some area of your life, maybe that confession is, God, help me renew something. Maybe it's a commitment here, maybe it's a commitment somewhere else. Let us remember that as we get the bread and the cup. And here's the thing, as they're going to be passed, I'm not going to come back up here, I'm not going to say we'll all drink it once, it's on your own. Uh, this is for those who profess faith in Christ. This is just a simple act, a simple reminder that says, Jesus, you gave your life for me. So they're going to be passed sometime in the next three songs. Take that on your own as you come before the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you as a church um, regularly, every Sunday, and we're reminded, Lord, that things in life um, are a gift from you. We're reminded that my hands have not caused everything in my life, but Lord, you have caused everything for good for those who love you and for those who are called according to your purpose. Jesus, there are things in my life that this morning I need to come and I need to confess. There are things in every one of our lives that we need to come and confess. There are things that we need to repent of. There are things that we need to turn from. And Lord, like the story in Nehemiah, to rebuild a nation took a moment where they say, God, we need to confess, we need to repent. Lord, as every one of us in this room has something in life that we need rebuilding on, I pray that you would just pierce our hearts a little this morning. That as we hold that cup, as we hold that bread, that there may be something that we just say, you know what, I got to confess this before I can take this. Jesus, we love you, we praise you, we need you. Amen.